Does our Christmas shopping money have to be given to companies that promote causes we don't agree with? Instead of shopping and supporting companies that might not align with our beliefs, um, we can have a good alternative um, when it comes to Christmas shopping. And what about the biblical concept of male headship in the home? Does that promote abuse? The secular narrative is, if men believe in the biblical theology of headship, that will turn them into abusive, overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. And the empirical data is out there now. It does not turn men into overbearing patriarchs. It actually turns them into very loving, respectful husbands. It's the weekend of November 25th and 26th. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. Well, that may not be the exact song you want to start your Christmas season off with this year, but the fact is, much of our shopping goes to support companies that undermine the things that we believe in the most. And if you felt that frustration, but you don't want to skimp on what you buy, then Hannah Metter has a great solution for you in The Stand magazine this month. Hannah, good to have you with us today. Hey, it's nice to be here. Tell me about this article and how you're helping us with our Christmas shopping this year. Yeah, so I wrote this article, and it's called Shopping with a Cause. And um, a couple of us on The Stand staff took some time to look into different ministries and organizations. And these organizations in particular offer different ways that you can shop for Christmas. So some provide goods, some are donations, um, and you can just, instead of shopping and supporting companies that might not align with our beliefs, Mm -hmm. um, we can have a good alternative um, when it comes to Christmas shopping. And so you can know that your dollars are being well spent. Absolutely. Since we're stewards of everything God has given us. Okay, are these ministries or are these different private companies? What's the nature of some of these? So it's a little bit of both. Okay. Um, For example, Prodigal Pottery is one, and it's probably my favorite. I'm a Mississippi girl. We like pottery around here. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) um, they are located in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and they are kind of an offshoot of another ministry called King's Home, which is a ministry that helps women... Um, um, impacted by homelessness, sex trafficking, addiction, different situations such as that. And so um, Prodigal Pottery employs these women to make the pottery and um, gives them a job, gives them an opportunity to, you know, make some money and also um, kind of get in touch with their creative side, I guess. Sure, sure. Um, And so they have beautiful pottery. Um, and do they ship to you if you they order? They do, they yes. Okay. Right. Um, they, but I will say that they made sure I knew that it can take up to two weeks. Okay. So if you're going to order from them, better get going. Better get going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keep that in mind. All right, and the website on that is prodigalpottery.com. Yes. We'll put all these links on the podcast page, but we'll give them as we go as well. Oh, that's perfect. What else do you have? Um, also, there is Noonday Collection, and they have a different, they have different types of things. They've got jewelry. They've got a lot of jewelry. They've got some apparel. Um, they've got some home items. Um, and they started um, based on the founder went to Uganda. Mm-hmm met a Ugandan couple um, who were artisans and they were making jewelry and different things. And so they really wanted a way to produce their, um, their goods 
and in a fair trade environment, mm-hmm. so in a safe environment, and they wanted to help get people in their community to join them. And so the founder um, actually took some of their pieces to her home, and she sold them in a little show mm-hmm. um, to help raise funds for her own adoption. Wow. And so this organization actually will let you host shows selling their products, and a, por- a proceed of that will go to help a couple fund their adoption or a family wow, fund so their adoption. Fun- funding adoption. Yes. So it's really interesting. Okay, that's Noonday Collection. And um, I think the website here is noondaycollection.com for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the third one, who do you have? Yes, I've got the Daily Grace Co. And I really love the Daily Grace Co. I use several of their Bible studies. Um, I've used them in group settings. I've used them personally. But they have several different Bible studies, um, a lot for women. They do have some for men. You Mm -hmm. can use them in small group settings or what have you. Um, And they also have things like they've got some mugs. They've got um, Bibles, highlighters, just things that are going to help you um, in Scripture studying um, and things of that nature. Yeah, the dailygraceco.com is the website for that. Yes. All right. And I know this one, Samaritan's Purse. <laughs> yes. A very big organization. Tell me what they have. Yes. So the Samaritan's Purse has its Christmas gift catalog, and they have different options that you can go in and you can donate. Um, you can buy chickens, water, That's a different, different gift. things. Yes. And it's, <laughs> I think it's a great gift because some people you don't know what to buy for. And so you can go on their website okay. and you can select these, um, these options and give in all honor or in memory um, of the person you would like. Uh, and and these chickens and things like that, we laugh about that. Yes. But these go to people in other countries. This is their livelihood and their right. uh, their means of, of uh, food. Right, absolutely. Many, many times. Mm-hmm, and so it's mm-hmm. a great way to contribute to that. Uh, and of course, the website, SamaritansPurse.org. And Hannah, you can spend just about any level of money you want, depending upon what yes, you get. Yes, you can. And I think one of the donation options may just be a donation to Samaritan's Purse if you want to, but you could, you know, do as many chickens as you wanted or sure. as much water or a shoebox. That's an option that you can do. And they'll send so, a note to someone. Yes, they will. They'll send a card and okay. let you know that it had been the gift has been given in your honor. Okay. So. And what else do you have? And then last, one of our favorites, um, we have the AFA Resource Center. And for Christmas this year, they are offering their Noel coffee um, as well as um, Brother Don's Christmas buttons and um, some, I think they actually have shirts that I just got an email about, which isn't in the article, so definitely go check that out. (laughs) Wonderful ways to make our shopping easier and at the same time help support ministries that are advancing the gospel. Great idea, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Awesome. I'm excited. (laughs) The subject of masculinity is a topic of conversation these days. It's something you see from the op-ed pages of newspapers to shaving commercials. Bullying. The Me Too movement against sexual harassment. From nearly every quarter of society, we've seen an outright attack on masculinity. And that hasn't happened without some devastating effects on both men and boys. But in spite of this, there is some good news, and there are ways that we can promote a biblical understanding of what it means to be a man in today's world. With us to talk about that is best-selling author and speaker Nancy Piercy. She's professor and scholar-in-residence at Houston Baptist University, and her latest book is The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. Professor Piercy, welcome to The Stand Radio. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take us back a little bit and let us know where this war on masculinity actually began. Oh, well, most people think um, it probably began in the 1960s with second-wave feminism. But what I show in my book is that you have to go a lot farther back than that. You have to go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. That's when we first start seeing negative language applied to men. And So why is that? It's because before the Industrial Revolution, men worked alongside their families all day. Their wives and children in the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so the cultural expectation of men really focused on their caretaking role. In fact, interesting historical fact, most books on parenting and childbearing were addressing men, fathers, whereas if you go to a bookstore today, most books are written to mothers. Right. So men were actually, they spent as much time with their kids as mothers did, um, which is hard for us to imagine these days. But the Industrial Revolution takes men, well, it starts by taking work out of the home, and then, of course, men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time in American history, men were not working alongside the family members, right, people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see the language change, because people began to protest that by being disconnected from their family all day, men were losing their caretaking ethos. They were becoming egocentric and self-centered and self-interested and greedy and acquisitive. I'm using the language of the day. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, first, and, and for the first time, you see people complaining that men were turning work and career into an idol. Then instead of working for their family, they were working for professional advancement and personal success and finances and so on. And so that's actually when you see the negative language start. I, I don't think they use the word toxic, but mm-hmm. some of the denunciations of the male character were almost as extreme as what you hear today. And so, of course, if that's where it started, that's where we need to go to fix it. If the problem started when men got disconnected from their families, the solution has to be, can we find ways to reconnect fathers okay. to their families, even, even post-Industrial Revolution? Bring us up to the the point where we are today. As you look at all of the cultural indicators out there, how are men and boys uh, holding up when it comes to this kind of assault on masculinity? Oh, yeah. I think it's widely known now that men and boys are falling behind. You know, this used to be a right-left issue, but the left is finally acknowledging Mm -hmm. that boys are falling behind. Uh, There's been so many books out like uh, the War on Boys and Why Boys Fail and The Boy Crisis and The Trouble with Boys. There's all these books tracing the fact that boys are falling behind at all levels of education. It starts in kindergarten. They don't have as fine uh, the fine motor control that girls do, so they can't use the scissors as well. Right, right. right. <laughs> so they start feeling like they're inferior all, already in kindergarten. Uh, all, through, all through high school, they're getting, uh, boys are getting lower grades, lower test scores. In the university now, um, 60% of students are female. 40% male, that's the average. More women than men go to graduate school and even professional school, like law and medicine. Mm-hmm. So boys are falling behind significantly at all stages of, of education. And then when they graduate, what happens? Men are falling behind, both in relation to women and in relation to where they used to be, on several measures, mental health, drug and alcohol addiction, homelessness, crime, 90% of prison inmates are male, um, and... 
even unemployment, you don't see it because it's not, these are men not even looking for work anymore. So it doesn't show yeah. up in the normal statistics. Researchers had to dig deeper, and they tell us that male unemployment is now at Great Depression era level. Wow. Great Depression. Right. That was such a crisis. And then uh, life expectancy has gone down. Women's is not, so it's not a general trend. Male life expectancy has gone down in recent years. So there was a report on it in a magazine called The New Scientist, and it said the major demographic factor now for early death is being male. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So I say in my book, it's, you know, is it time maybe to have some compassion on boys and men and, and look into crafting programs to help boys and men succeed? Nancy, in your book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, you reference the American Psychological Association, and they're pointing out the fact that most mass shooters are male. But you say they've overlooked the power and control of the heroic men who've stopped the mass shooters. You go on to say that masculine traits are not intrinsically toxic. They are good when they're directed to virtuous ends. Is this what you meant in the analogy of the software we're given and the virus that's corrupted everything? And could you explain that analogy for us? Yes, so this came out of another study. Uh, One of the things that is unique about my book is I do have a lot of studies, a lot of facts. And this was done by a sociologist. And he, he gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this clever experiment where he asked young men two questions. What does it mean to be a good man? You know, if you're at a funeral, in the eulogy, somebody says, he was a good man. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And the sociologist said all around the globe, young men had no trouble answering that. They would immediately start listing things like honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, Mm -hmm. do the right thing, uh, look out for the little guy, be a protector, be a provider, be responsible. And the sociologist would say, we're doing that. And they'd say, I don't know, it's just in the air we breathe. Mm -hmm. Or if they were in a Western country they would often say, it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Then he would follow up with a second question, and he'd say, what does it mean if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young men would say, no, no, that's completely different. You know, that means be tough and strong and never show weakness and win at all costs. Okay. Uh, be competitive, get rich. And so the sociologist, you know, he's not even a Christian, and yet he acknowledges that There's something, an inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man. I mean, I would say we are made in God's image. You know, men do know inherently, universally, what it means to be the good man. That's the software Mm -hmm. that God has created us with. But young men also feel a cultural pressure to live up to the quote-unquote real man, which includes traits that can be toxic. Not always. You know, we, we do want people who could be tough in a crisis, But if it gets disconnected from a moral vision uh, and becomes secular, then it can lead into toxic traits like entitlement, dominance, control, and so on. The the Andrew Tate paradigm. Right. uh, He wasn't so big when I was writing the book, but he has just exploded now. I have, uh, by the way, for those who don't know Andrew Tate, the the paradigm is fast money, fast women, Mm. fast cars. Um, he openly calls himself a pimp and says he, he's made his money by producing pornography. Okay. And yet, I got an email from a, one of my former graduate students who now teaches high school. And she said, what should I do? All my male students are fans of Andrew Tate. They're putting his quotes into their yearbook. I said, where do you teach? At a classical Christian school. Oh, wow. 
So that was a surprise. Yes. Even in Christian schools and churches, boys are starting to reach out to these online influencers mm-hmm. who are promoting a very secularized view of masculinity. Okay. So, of course, the, the challenge to the church is how do we counter that with a, a healthy biblical masculinity? Let me pick up on that. So there's a lot of criticism toward evangelical men that they are, in fact, the worst of the lot. Uh, Is that a fair assessment? That is not fair, and this is really the final reason I decided to write the book, is I kind of stumbled on um, sociological literature on Christian men. Um, Here's what's been happening. Uh, for, For decades, Christians have been treated as Exhibit A of toxic masculinity. As you say, um, I'll give you just one quote. It was easy to find quotes. But, <laughs> right. um, so this is the co-founder of the Church Too movement, which followed the Me Too movement. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so the social scientists, so these are psychologists and sociologists who are Christian, and who were reading these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You're making these charges, but where's your data? Mm-hmm. And so they went out and did the studies, and I quote some dozen or so studies in my book where they found that evangelical Christian men who are authentic in their faith, who attend church regularly, test out at the top. They are the most loving husbands and the most engaged fathers. They, they uh, by the way, they do interview the wives separately, which mm-hmm. is important. Right. And the wives test out as saying they're the happiest with their husband's love and affection. They are the most engaged fathers. They spend 3.5 hours per week more with their children than secular men. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce, 35% less likely to divorce than secular men. And then, surprisingly, they actually have the lowest rate of domestic abuse and violence yeah. of any group in America. And sometimes it's easier if you, you, know, if you crystallize it with a quote. So let me give you a quick quote. Um, one of my favorite uh, sociologists, he did the largest study. His name is Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia. And to give you a sense of his stature, he writes in places like the New York Times. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> but not, not a lot of Christians get invited yeah, exactly. to write for the New York Times. But listen to what he said then. This is one of his articles. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Uh, of course, they're focusing on the wives because the assumption is that these marriages are oppressive to women. But no, it turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% mm. of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high-quality marriages. And then he turns to his uh, secular colleagues, because sociology is a highly secularized discipline. And, and actually, this is my favorite part of the quote. He says, academics need to cast aside their prejudices <laughs> about religious conservatives yeah. and evangelicals in particular. Conservative, Protestant, married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So that's what the research shows, and we should be bold about bringing this into the public square because this is not a pep talk from a religious leader. This is solid empirical evidence. These are evidence-based findings that show that, that Christianity really does have the power to reconcile the sexes, as I 
put it in my subtitles. There's also a flip side to that. There are men who profess to be Christians who take on the biblical notions of uh, authority and submission, but they are not engaged in the church. And the, the studies show something different for that group. What, what is that? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that because that's an important balance. And the first pushback I always get is, but haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture? Right. In fact, in my research, I found that is one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. So the researchers went back to the data, and they made that very important distinction that you just mentioned, which is pulling out men who actually do attend church regularly and are serious about their Christian commitment from men who are nominal. And here in America, perhaps more than any other country in the world, we have a lot of nominal Christians. It's sort of the, the first and second great awakenings gave us a lot of Christians who ended up you know, shift, sort, of, sort of sliding into nominal Christianity. What I mean by that is uh, men who might... On a survey like this, they would check the Baptist box, for example, but they don't actually attend church. It's more of a family tradition, a cultural tradition. And you're right, these men test out shockingly different. They fit all the negative, toxic stereotypes. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They spend the least amount of time with their children. They have the highest rate of divorce, even 20% higher than secular men. That is shocking to me. Yes. And wait, and the last one is even more shocking. They have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, even higher than secular men. So apparently they're taking the language of headship and submission. Mm -hmm. They're hanging around the edges of the Christian world enough to pick up that language, but they're infusing those words with meaning from the secular script. Um, You used the software and the virus metaphor before. So the software is how God created us, and the virus is the secular distortion of that. And fortunately, nominal Christian men are actually picking up the virus and promoting that. I do get questions from people sometimes saying, well, but why would they be worse than secular men? And apparently it's because, you know, the average secular guy who may be hitting his wife and kids does not feel religious justification for what he's doing. Mm -hmm. But the nominal Christian man says, well, you know, I know what the Bible says. It means I'm the head, I'm the boss. And she's supposed to submit to me, and she's not, so I had to put her in her place. So he feels religious justification and ends up actually being worse than secular men. So that's the challenge to the church today, I'd say, is how do we encourage the men who are doing a good job, you know, who are doing well, who are committed, and who are, like my students saying, you know, masculinity has been beaten out of us. You know, even Christian men often feel that way. So we need to support and encourage them. Um, And at the same time, how do you reach out to these men who are at the fringes and who are in many ways, you know, promoting a very negative stereotype of of evangelicalism? How do we disciple them? How do we bring them into the church and help them to discover a truly biblical meaning of masculinity? Well, let's pick up on on some of those positive elements. What can women do who are listening uh, to encourage uh, godliness in their husbands and in their sons and to foster a biblical view of masculinity? Yeah, let me start with one way in which the Church, um, I I think, has been making a mistake. And this this anecdote comes from one of my graduate students. She is the uh, head of the women's ministry at a large Baptist church here in Houston. And she told me uh, when the pastoral staff gets together to decide, you know, what to do on the, throughout the year, she says, on Mother's Day, 
we plan to give out roses to the women and tell them they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. Mm. And so we can start there. Stop scolding the men. <laughs> you know, that's where this, this, this sociological data is so uh, helpful because um, I, I had to go digging into this academic literature to find this. It's not out in the public yet. It's not even out in the Christian world. So we should start by educating our Christian leaders on this data so that they can start encouraging Christian men. Um, and, and, you know, that's one thing women can do to start with is recognizing that, statistically speaking, the, that Christian men who really are living out their faith are doing a marvelous job. You know, I was surprised when I read this. Mm-hmm. I have two chapters on this. One of them gives the data, and then the other one just gives interviews with Christian couples to hear it from their own words. Right. And I, I, was, I was blown away. I mean, I've heard the negative stereotypes my whole life, right? And so I was blown away when I read from their own mouths the way that Christian husbands described headship in such a loving way, in such a protective way, in such a respectful way. I just, I didn't expect that. Right. So women, read these chapters. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So that you can be positive in encouraging Christian men. You see, the, 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 the secular narrative is, if men believe in the biblical theology of headship, that will turn them into abusive, overbearing, tyrannical patriarchs. Well, that's not true. I mean, it's an empirical charge, and the empirical data is out there now. It, is. it does not turn men into overbearing patriarchs. It actually turns them into very loving, respectful husbands. And so just getting that data out there can be very, a very helpful first step, I would think. Our guest today has been Professor Nancy Piercy, author of many books, including the latest one we're talking about today, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. And there is a great study guide in there, so it would be a, a good resource for personal or group study. Uh, Nancy, how can people connect with you personally? So my, my publisher generously redesigned my website, so it's colorful and fun. Come over and see it. It's nancypiercy.com, and, and Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y. Um, but, yeah, you can browse my other books. You can take a look at who's endorsed them. You can leave a message. I do read all the messages. don't have time to respond to them all, but... Um, come on over to nancypiercy.com and say hello. Well, we encourage you to get a copy of the book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. You can check that out at the website, and of course, you can also go to christianbook.com. Professor Piercy, thank you so much for writing this book and for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Next week on The Stand Radio, we'll hear from Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. He's got some news to share with us about an outreach event going on in December that might just be perfect for your family. And we'll talk about some ways your money can be used to advance the gospel while at the same time getting some great tax benefits. Also, Dr. Ray Rooney will be with us to discuss the inevitable spiritual dark times we all face and the ways we can overcome them. If you've missed a part of today's program or would like to know more about our guests, check out our podcast page at AFR.net slash podcast. And for important articles on culture, faith, and family, get your free six-month subscription to The Stand magazine by going to AFA.net slash The Stand. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening.